0: The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. In our study of 2 Corinthians, The Call to Church Action, this is Part 23, The Enrichment of Stewardship. Our text, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. May the words of my mouth the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Will you turn with me, please, to the second epistle of Paul to Corinthians, chapter 9, and the final section of God's call to Christian stewardship. We're pursuing these studies through this wonderful epistle, and we've come to this central section. Section 1 through 7, God's Call to Christian Fellowship. Chapters 8 and 9, God's Call to Christian Stewardship. And we've seen already in three messages aspects of this great subject. And today we climax it with verses 6 through 15. In this final paragraph Paul brings this treatment of the grace of giving to a glorious climax. In fact a doxology thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. But before he reaches that point he is determined not to leave his readers until he has impressed upon them the final and all important fact that the grace of giving is the supreme method of enriching the lives of believers. Not only the lives of those who give, but those who receive. Not only the lives of those who distribute and dispense gifts, but those who by reason of their need are on the receiving end. So he speaks in these verses of four important matters under the general title of the Enrichment of Stewardship. In fact, there could be no more thrilling aspect of these studies we've been doing than the one we shall consider this morning. Let's look at the first point, the enrichment of fruitfulness in stewardship. Look with me at verse 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. There are laws of harvest that operate not only in the natural realm but also in the spiritual realm. Paul is illustrating this fact by drawing attention to the farmer who sows his crop. This man knows that what he has sown in the spring he will doubtless harvest in the fall. Moreover, the farmer is cognizant of the fact that if he sows sparingly he will also reap sparingly. If he sows bountifully, he will also reap bountifully. He's a foolish man if he sows sparingly. He's a foolish man if he doesn't sow in order to reap bountifully. Now this is a profound principle in all areas of Christian experience, and especially in this matter of giving. The believer is to understand that giving is not a question of scattering, it's a question of sowing. Thus all giving constitutes a challenge to our faith. No farmer sows without an element of faith. He doesn't watch the skies, as Solomon puts it, he doesn't take cognizance of the wind, or of whether it's going to rain or not, for he can't predict tomorrow or the next day or the following day. He knows that the God of all law, the God who determines night and day, springtime and harvest, is the God who will send the rain and the sun, who will manipulate the clouds and the wind, and in faith he sows, knowing that God is going to reward his sowing. So Paul speaks of the Christian and his giving. He speaks specifically of the enrichment of fruitfulness in giving. And by way of illustration and interpretation, I quote some verses from Galatians that wonderfully interpret these words of Corinthians. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit Shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting? Let us not be weary in well doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we faint not. Solemnly, the Apostle points out that there are two kinds of sowing and also two kinds of reaping. Here is the first there is a sowing which reaps a carnal harvest. There is a sowing which reaps a carnal harvest. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. There is no enrichment in this kind of giving. A carnal Christian sows to his flesh by spending his resources to gratify his own personal desires. Such a person must expect nothing less than the reaping of corruption. In other words, that which might have brought reward by being invested in the Lord's work will bring absolutely nothing will bring absolutely nothing but wood, hay, and stubble in that day at the judgment seat of Christ. Careful thought will reveal that this matter of carnal giving impinges upon motives as well as upon means. It's important not only what we give, but how we give and why we give in the presence of God. And this is a solemn word to all of us in terms of our daily, yes, and weekly investments. Not only of time and talents, but of tithes. I wonder how many of us are sowing to the flesh in that we haven't really thought through our giving in terms of where we invest. How we invest. Why we invest in the Lord's work millions and millions of dollars today are squandered and will bring nothing more than a carnal harvest in the and stubble at the judgment seat of christ why because we've never thought about this matter of where we invest as well as why and how are you giving to a going concern are you giving to a church that glorifies god Are you giving to a ministry that's alive and anointed by the Spirit? I care not where you come from, whether members of this particular assembly or churches across our land. There is a sowing which reaps a carnal harvest. I wouldn't be in the shoes of some men who give to causes that ultimately undermine the work of God and bring discredit to the cause of Jesus Christ. But there is a sowing which reaps a spiritual harvest. He that soweth to the Spirit shall have the Spirit reap life everlasting. Here is the enrichment of fruitfulness in giving, which is possible to all who venture out in the ministry of Christian stewardship. The text actually means that as we respond to the indwelling Spirit in love, in sacrifice, and in stewardship, we shall be adding interest to the eternal capital that we've laid by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ into our lives and receiving the gift of eternal life. Nobody can merit the gift of eternal life by personal works or righteousness because the word of God says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And again, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But having made that very clear, there is a whole area of scripture which shows that we can add to our spiritual capital by continuing a ministry of stewardship and giving. In fact, there is an area of Christian experience which deepens through the ministry of giving and through nothing else. God can never deepen that life of yours and therefore can never fill that life of yours and therefore can never overflow that life of yours until you have begun the ministry of giving. God has limited the deepening of that area in your life to a ministry of giving, and without giving and stewardship, that area of your life will never be thrown open, never be opened up to his fullness of blessing. Introduce me to a niggly Christian, and I'll show you a person whose Christian life is shriveled up. On the other hand, lead me to a believer who knows the joy of sacrificial giving and I'll point you out a man or a person who is one of fruitful enrichment. I'm convinced that one of the reasons why the devil has caused the subject of giving to stir up hostility, rebellion, resentment, yes, and even frontal attack, is because he knows that when Christians begin to give We're in for revival. When Christians begin to give, God's going to pour out a blessing that we will not have room enough to contain it. When we bring the tithes into the storehouse, the sluice gates of heaven are pulled back and the avalanche of blessing falls upon the church. And the devil knows that. And he's going to stir up every kind of objection to the ministry of giving and to the message of giving. But he that soweth to the Spirit, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Let us never forget that at the very heart of the Gospel is the whole principle of giving. Heaven would never be enriched with the company of the redeemed if Jesus hadn't given himself. And furthermore, men and women would never know the riches of his glory if there had been no cross on Calvary's hill. There is no such experience as the experience of fruitfulness Without the ministry of giving. And when Paul says in Galatians, He that soweth through the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting, what he's talking about is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in all his fullness, which comes out of a life of giving. So the enrichment of fruitfulness is in the heart of this matter of stewardship. Fruitfulness in stewardship. The very idea of fruitfulness is tied up with the ministry of stewardship. But secondly notice the enrichment of joyfulness in stewardship. Not only fruitfulness, but joyfulness in stewardship. Look again at verse 7 Every man according as he purposeth in his heart. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart. So let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. Why? For God loveth a cheerful, a joyful, a hilarious giver. We've talked about usefulness and fruitfulness. Now look at joyfulness. Giving not only develops a capacity for fruitfulness, but also for joyfulness. Joyfulness. Miserableness is always linked with miserliness, whereas merriment is indissolubly joined to magnanimity. To know such joyfulness, however, Paul says that giving must be exercised, notice carefully, verse 7, without casualness. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. This takes us back to the principles we've already considered in previous studies. God has given careful instruction as to how we should develop the holy habits of giving purposefully. Notice in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, As every man lays by in store. Yes, as God prospers, so we're to give. And so giving out of a true sense of purposefulness and planning, we fulfill The law of giving. Casualness implies carelessness, heartlessness, and therefore joylessness. The very discipline which determines a sense of purposefulness in the discipline which deepens joyfulness in our Christian experience. So we are to give without casualness. Notice again, verse 7, We are to give without complaint, so let him give not grudgingly. Not grudgingly. This is truly a searching word to all our hearts. There isn't one of us amongst us here this morning who hasn't had to confess at one time or another that when the challenge to give has come to us, there's risen a spirit of resentment or rebellion, unwillingness in our hearts. But there's no joy in giving in this kind. No joy whatsoever. It doesn't matter how it's screwed out of our lives, there's no joy in it. Oh, God, enable us to bring such unwillingness to part with what God has blessed us with to the cross of Calvary and nail it there once and forever until the joy of giving is born in our souls. Without casualness, without complaint, look again at the verse, without compulsion, so let him give not grudgingly nor of necessity. The idea behind that word is that the believer is not to have as his main object and motive the consideration of what others think of his giving. Alas, alas, so many of us give because of reputation. So many of us give because of what others might say. So many of us give because of necessity. It's been screwed out of us, and we feel we can't hold back just because pressure has been put upon us. But I want to say that all such thoughts rob giving, of its moral value. God's purpose is rather that we should experience the enrichment of joyfulness in giving. So he says, every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, or of necessity. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. Now, as we've been reminded so often, the word cheerful here is literally translated hilarious. Hilarious. Suggesting a spirit of real enjoyment which sweeps away all human restraints. The Lord Jesus summed up this enrichment of joyfulness when he said, addressing those elders at Ephesus, Paul quotes the words, Paul quotes the words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But Jesus said it. Jesus said it. When he said it, it isn't clear. Those words, incidentally, are not found in the Gospels. You read through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, except for a hint here or there, those words, exactly as quoted, are not found in the Gospels. And yet when Paul stood before those elders at Ephesus on the very threshold of his departure for Rome, he said, brethren, I want to tell you something. I've given everything. I've given my days and my nights. I've given of my goods. I've worked with my hands. I've broken my heart again and again. I visited from house to house with tears and sorrow. I've shunned not to declare the whole gospel of God and the truth of God. I've given everything. I've literally given everything. And my heart is just full of joy. And I want you to learn from this that it is more blessed to give than to receive. I wonder how many of us have proved that deep principle of joyfulness through givingness. The joy of giving. In every local church of Jesus Christ, there are people who would rise to testify to the outworking of this spiritual law in their lives. They never knew what it was to be joyful until they learned how to give without casualness, without constraint or complaint without compulsion there is a lovely story i love to tell of the saintly francis ridley have who wrote the lines we so often sing without due regard to their import and weightiness take my silver and my gold not a mite would i withhold it is on record that when this hymn was both written and dedicated, Frances Ridley Havergill did exactly what she had written. In her writings is this personal testimony, "'Take my silver and my gold. Now this means shipping off all my ornaments, including a jewel cabinet which is really fit for a countess to the Church Missionary Society. I retain only a brooch for daily wear, which is a memorial to my dear parents.' I don't think I need to tell you that I never packed a box with more pleasure. This was giving with hilarity. The enrichment of joyfulness in giving. Our first point, the enrichment of fruitfulness in giving, sowing and reaping. Now the enrichment of joyfulness in giving, giving with hilarity. Now look again at our text, the enrichment of usefulness in giving or stewardship. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye being always full, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your own seeds sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Verses 8 through 10. The miracle of giving is that it produces a ministry of giving. Isn't that wonderful? The miracle of giving is that it produces a ministry of giving. In other words, when God can trust his people with money, he sees that they have plenty for themselves and even more for others. So the apostle quotes from the Psalm 112 verse 9 to support this divine principle. Let me read the words. He hath dispersed, he hath given to the poor. His righteousness endureth forever. Simply stated, this law of enrichment of usefulness in giving works as follows. As we give to God, first, he meets our personal requirements. There's the first principle. As we give to God, he promises to meet our personal requirements. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food. The God of Elijah is still the same today. When the prophet put himself at God's total disposal, he never lacked anything. Even though the land was scourged with famine, and even though the brook Cherith dried up and the ravens ceased to bring their daily bread, what did God do? God provided a little soul with a cruise of oil, and that sustained the great Elijah. David says it in one of his psalms, I have been young and now I am old, yet have I never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. In the days of our Lord's earthly sojourn he could challenge his disciples with these words, when I sent you out without purse and script and shoes, lacked ye anything, and they came back with radiant eyes and ringing voices They said, nothing, Lord, nothing. Then the Apostle Paul sums it up when he says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And again, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That's the first principle. He meets our personal requirements. Give to God and he'll meet your personal requirements. Secondly, give to God, he multiplies our actual resources. Give to God and he multiplies our actual resources. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown. It is obvious from this verse that God alone is responsible for the measure in which these resources are multiplied, for the promise is clear and sure. He multiplies the seed that is sowed. Or, in the verse, he ministers seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sowed. So we can safely say that giving is not self-impoverishment. Giving is literally self-enrichment. And the Lord Jesus reaffirmed this when he said these words taken from Luke 8, 38, Give and it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give to your bosom, for with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. This, of course, must not be our motive in giving, lest we vitiate the whole ethical value of the act. But our Lord offers this assurance that giving is never a one-way street. It is a door to plenty. You can never be in God's debt. Never, never can you be in God's debt. As you give, he not only meets your personal requirements, he multiplies your actual resources. Scores of instances could be cited at this point to illustrate how God multiplies the resources of those who give in right measure, And with right motive. I think just now of a very dear friend of mine and of many here who doubtless have read his literature Robert A. Laidlaw, well known businessman of Auckland, New Zealand, the author of the little book, The Reason Why. Here is his testimony As a young man of 18 and a half, I made a covenant with God that he would give, that I would give a tenth of all my earnings. Later at the age of 25 I decided to change that amount to 50% of all my earnings. God continued to multiply my resources until I was giving even more to the work of the Lord. Now past 70 years of age, he says, I want to bear testimony that in spiritual communion and in material things God has blessed me 100-fold and has graciously entrusted me to a stewardship far beyond my expectation when as a lad of eighteen I gave a definite portion of my wages to God. The same can be said of William Colgate who joined a church in the city of New York and who as a boy gave ten cents to the Lord's work out of every dollar he earned as his business prospered he gave two-tenths rising to five tenths and then when his children were educated and dedicated to God for service he gave all of his income to God then we could mention God's prospering hand on men like Heinz of 57 varieties fame H.P. Kroll of Quaker Oats Kraft of Crafts, Cheese and many others the fact that all these Christians do not become the men that you and I represent and we don't prosper necessarily as they do doesn't alter the principle for God is no man's debtor. Indeed, the names I've just mentioned are world famous but the history of Christian giving has been demonstrated in the lives of those who are not known. Little tiny souls tucked away in obscurity who have given. I have here the story of a dear woman who had no money and was too old to work she began to pray, Lord, teach me how to obtain. Give me someone to send out and support as a missionary. Remember, she hadn't any money. She was too old to work. Before her death, she was supporting 93 missionaries. And so we could go on adding story after story after story of those whom God has used, because they learned not only the fruitfulness of giving, the joyfulness of giving, but the usefulness of giving. Yes, he meets our personal requirements. He multiplies our actual resources. But thirdly, he motivates our practical responsibility. God is able to increase the fruits of your righteousness In other words, he motivates our giving and then uses the gifts with which he has blessed us to become the fruits of righteousness to others. Thus people and causes to which we give are not only materially blessed but spiritually blessed beyond our giving. And that is the fruit of righteousness of which the apostle speaks here. This in the highest sense is sowing to the spirit. It's one thing to dispense a gift. Anybody can do that. It is quite another thing to impart a spiritual blessing with the gift that you dispense. We've all had the experience of this sort. There is a kind of giving which may be enriched by the sheer experience of God meeting you in the act of giving. You've given, and perhaps you've been even materially enriched, but your heart's been starved deep down in your soul you're as barren as barren can be but there's another kind of giving in the holy ghost which not only materially blesses or might not even materially bless but so blesses spiritually that you wish you'd given far more than you ever initially intended to distribute this brings us to the greatest and last point in our study this morning the enrichment of thankfulness in stewardship. Here is where my heart just soars, and I trust yours will. We've talked about fruitfulness and joyfulness and usefulness in stewardship. Now look at thankfulness. Paul finishes this glorious passage with these verses, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness which causeth through us Thanks, giving to God, verse 11, and then verse 15. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Now, thankfulness is the ultimate in all Christian stewardship. When God has so worked in our hearts that giving turns to worship, we have truly experienced the grace of giving. When a man or a woman can kneel and say, Oh God, I thank thee. In this act of worship, for the sheer joy of giving to thee, he's reached the ultimate. There is no greater evidence of a spirit filled person than a praising Christian. When Paul exalts the believers in Ephesus, be ye being filled with the Spirit, he adds immediately, giving thanks always to God for everything. And so the Bible makes it plain that there is no greater enrichment to the total human personality than a spirit of thankfulness. Let us remember that in one of the profoundest statements we find in the New Testament, the apostle tells us, and I quote, God has predestinated us according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. God's predestinating grace has brought about the work of salvation in your heart and mine that we should be to the praise of his glory thankful Christians. So our chief occupation in heaven is going to be the worship and the praise of God and I want to tell you this you cannot genuinely worship you cannot genuinely praise you cannot genuinely love God however much you think so unless you've learned the ministry of stewardship the ministry of giving For the two are totally compatible. And in that passage, the apostle makes it evident that enrichment of thankfulness comes by way of the ministry of giving. Thus, he concludes his great teaching in these two chapters with these thoughts, with which we conclude this morning. He he shows, he shows that this enrichment of thankfulness in giving does three things one, satisfies the soul. Satisfies the soul. Look at verse 11. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. There is nothing more satisfying in all the world than the God-given thankfulness which comes through our ability to enrich others. It is a level of thankfulness rarely found in Christians today, alas, but it is part of God's total purpose for his own children. Just as his own heart was never satisfied until he'd given everything to redeem mankind. And just as the Bible says it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath put him to grief. And then moves on to tell us that he shall see of the travel of his soul and shall be satisfied. So I want to tell you you'll never be satisfied as a Christian. Never be satisfied until you know what it is to enrich others through the ministry of giving. Yes, Paul expresses his gratitude when he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he hath counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who is before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. But God had mercy upon me. I obtained grace. That's why I want to give my all to him, he says. In other words, his supreme cause of thanksgiving was that God delivered him from a bigoted, self-centered, and religiously cruel life to serve others for the glory of God. But this enrichment of thankfulness in giving not only satisfies the soul, but secondly, edifies the church. Look at verses 12 and 13. For the administration of this service not only supply the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God while by the enrichment of this ministration they glorified God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. These two verses are quite remarkable in that they show how the enrichment of thankfulness in giving teaches the church both how to praise as well as how to pray. Paul points out that the saints at Jerusalem would be inspired to praise God because of the evident working of the gospel of the Corinthian church. One of the greatest problems in convincing Christians and non-Christians of the reality of the gospel is the fact that there is seldom any evidence of practical liberality. And so thankfulness through giving not only edifies the church in the ministry of praise, but in the ministry of prayer. For Paul goes right on to say, And by their prayer for you, which long after you, for the exceeding grace of God in you. Nothing develops the capacity for prayer in a church than the ministry of praise. Find a praising church and you'll find a praying church. But the reverse is never true. We start with praise for what God has done and that leads us to prayer. For if we're not thankful for what God has done, why should we pray? that others might be enriched. Satisfies the soul, this spirit of thanksgiving. It edifies the church, this spirit of thanksgiving. But finally notice, and this is so important, it magnifies the Lord. It magnifies the Lord. The last verse of the chapter, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. This is truly the climax to the whole subject of giving. With depth of insight, Paul concludes his entire treatment of this subject with a glorious doxology. What he is saying is that every time we give with thankfulness we only reflect the unspeakable act of God in giving his son. Already the gospel has been preached at Corinth and he wants it to be preached even farther afield. So he writes them and he says if you want if you want people to take notice of your lord if you do Then give him thanks. For every time you give thanks for God's unspeakable gift, you're reflecting what God has done in Christ and you're telling others what Jesus Christ means to you. You magnify the Lord. Already you remember in this passage Paul has said, ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. Here is the divine giving at its highest and deepest. At its highest level, we're lifted up to the great concept of the unmerited grace and favor of God. At the deepest level, we're introduced to the unutterable poverty to which our Lord descended. As a matter of fact, Paul is careful to use a Greek word here that doesn't occur anywhere else in the whole of the New Testament. Here it is, the word poor. It means pauperism. In other words, the Lord Jesus became a pauper on earth in order that he might introduce us to the riches of glory in heaven and what is he telling us well he's just telling us that this is why we thank god for his unspeakable gift think of the glory from which he came think of the poverty to which he went and give thanks and when you give thanks remember you're reflecting the grace of giving and that's what i've been writing to you about says paul That's what I've been writing to you about. Right through chapter 8 and right through chapter 9, it's the grace of giving, the grace of giving, the grace of giving. And if you are really thankful for what God has done in Christ, in sending him from glory to poverty, then thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And as Calvin points out, and many other scholars with him, Paul is speaking here of the very grace of giving in the believer. Thanks be unto God for the unspeakable gift. What gift? What gift? Just of Jesus? That's true. But it's more than that. In Jesus, in us, the grace of giving also. Thanks be unto God for the sheer gift of the grace of giving. As manifested and demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ, true. But now as reproduced in us in a stewardship and ministry of giving. So we've seen what we mean by the enrichment of stewardship. It is hard to understand how any sensitive and reasonable Christian can hold back from all that God demands and deserves in the light of such teaching. Who among us, who among us here this morning doesn't long for a life of fruitfulness and joyfulness and usefulness and thankfulness. But Paul maintains this cannot happen and will not happen until we know how to give not only of ourselves but of our service and of our substance. Indeed the more we've studied the subject the more it has become apparent to me personally, and I'm sure to many of us here, that the measure of yieldedness to the lordship of Jesus Christ is the measure of our discipline and devotion in Christian stewardship. And we can talk about being dedicated until we are blue in the face. We can talk about the lordship of Christ in our lives, but we lie and do not the truth until it's produced and reproduced in terms of Christian stewardship. And I can tell you that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ to render an account of our stewardship, we'll all wish that we'd given more since it's inescapably true that what we spend, we lose. What we keep will be left to others. What we give away will remain forever ours. Why? Because our reward in heaven is going to be commensurate with our stewardship on earth. When Jesus looks into our face, it will be well done, good and faithful servant. Faithful in what? Faithful in stewardship. For it is required of a steward that he be faithful. Beloved, as we conclude these four messages on two chapters on the stewardship of giving. If I said nothing before, and I say nothing after, I'm happy I've lived to preach this sermon to men and women, that I shall never, never have an excuse at the judgment seat of Christ from any one of you of saying, ah, you taught us the need of giving. You taught us something of the motive of giving. You taught us something of the Spirit's compulsion to give. But you never taught us anything about the enrichment of giving. You never taught us in your sermons that to give is to be enriched beyond one's wildest imagination. You never taught us that. I have. I've taught you that this morning. And if that life of yours is impoverished, if that life of yours is not deepened for all the fullness of the blessing of God, my friend, I'll tell you why. To the end of your days, whether you take it or leave it, it's because you've never given as God intends you to give. But once again I repeat, what we spend we lose, what we keep will be left over, what we give away will remain forever ours. Let us enter into this fullness of joy, this fullness of fruitfulness, this fullness of usefulness, fullness of thankfulness in the ministry of giving let us pray our father we bow in thy presence to thank thee for the sheer exhilaration we've derived from this matchless passage for the wonderful sense of elation that comes in the Holy Ghost to know that the path of fruitfulness, of joyfulness, of usefulness, and of thankfulness, is the pathway of stewardship. Oh, for an enriched church. Oh, for an enriched congregation. Grant us, Lord, to see this truth, to lay hold of it, to apply it, and then to live it out. We ask it for thy dear name's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.